Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Oh, good to see you. Good to be here, Jeremy. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to share experience. I mean, I think I've really respected the number of geographies and markets that you've launched with various businesses, and I'm excited to share your experience with everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Please uh, go ahead. Whatever I can add value to, I'd love to. Tell us more about yourself for those who don't know you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, um, I'm the son of a diplomat. So my mother basically moved around every three years of my life since I was five years old. So, you know, I went to Belgium at the age of five, then China, then came back to India, which was ironically the, the toughest transition for me. And then went straight to Canada afterwards from undergrad. So I spent my entire life just, you know, hopping between geographies, understanding different cultures and uh, just figuring out how to blend in. I think that's a quick introduction of just my earlier years. And then, of course, afterwards, I ended up going into McKinsey, spent a very fruitful three years there, started in the India office, um, did some time in San Francisco as well, and ended up in Latin America and Costa Rica for a year, which was you know, a fantastic, life-changing experience, just the kind of people I met and the experiences I had there. And yeah, and then took the typical MBA route with INSEAD and ended up in Southeast Asia, which has had its own set of challenges and rewards as well. Happy to talk more about that over the next 30 minutes. So tell us more about what you did after INSEAD MBA. Yeah, so, you know, INSEAD was, um, it's the kind of business school where, you know, you're, you're in and you're out in one year. It gives you a great amount of flexibility, especially if you're a consultant to transition careers. For somebody like me, who was very keen on you know, sampling Southeast Asia, being closer to home, um, but not necessarily being back in India, there's multiple personal and uh, professional benefits of being in Singapore, which is, you know, five hour flight away from home, but at the same time, you know, has unparalleled job options. We're talking about 2014, which is when I gra- graduated. Kimberly Clark was my, my first jump and I've had, you know, plenty of them afterwards, which I embrace. But Kimberly Clark was, you know, it, it was a leadership program, very structured, at least on surface. It gave me tremendous exposure to, you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore, uh, and even Taiwan to some extent and Korea. And, uh, you know, reporting into the head of strategy and also the CEO of Asia Pacific. So there's a tremendous learning curve. But like with most you know, consumer packaged goods or fast moving consumer goods jobs, it is very slow paced. It's nine to five and it suits some people. And for others, if you're looking for you know, a fast learning trajectory and uh, being part of a, a more happening industry, which you can relate to, such as say e-commerce or tech, such as myself, it was not the right place to be. So, you know, I kind of, I'll be honest, you know, it would help pay off loans for anybody who's out of a, you know, a business school that's on top of mind. But afterwards, I was very keen to try tech. And that's sort of what led me to Shopee, which was an entrepreneur in residence role. You know, they were plugging and playing me into the Taiwan business, their Jakarta business, their, their Vietnam business. So it was a fantastic, very rapid exposure to a company which now, you know, is part of an IPO under Garena or SEA group. And has basically done what Amazon did in its first 10 years, which was already so quick, in a span of three or four. That's tremendous exposure, very unique culture. You know, it's very geography specific. And I always joke that I was uh, the only diversity there. And, you know, when you have 
an Indian male as your diversity, it's, it's uh, something you need to be looking into. But, uh, you know, it was a fantastic experience and I uh, learned a tremendous amount from it. You know, that also led me to Deliveroo afterwards. You know, Deliveroo was something which came knocking on the door. And uh, I think it's probably one of the most fruitful learnings I've had throughout my entire life. Two amazing years just working in Singapore, uh, working a little bit in Hong Kong as well, and uh, focusing on just the cloud kitchen business. That was my, that was my main thing. You know, we launched 17 of them, 17 different kitchens across you know, three different locations in Singapore. You know, before it was even called cloud kitchens, um, and I was the first hire on the team. You know, that's where I really got the first taste of the, the general manager role, where you're, you know, you're managing something from scratch, you're building up a team, you're setting your own culture within sort of the rules of the overarching business. And you're still reporting in to the country manager, but you, know, you have a large amount of flexibility on your, your marketing, your operations, the way you launch new ideas within that same business because it's so unformed. So that was an amazing experience. I'm happy to talk more about that later as well. And then, of course, Lime, San Francisco-based, everyone's heard of it. Everyone has an opinion. You either love it or hate it. In Singapore, we had a lot of challenges. Uh, we saw the news on that with PMDs. Um, you know, we did, unfortunately, along with the entire industry get banned by the land transport authority here. But you know, I, I got transitioned to Munich afterwards, uh, where I was the uh, GM for that business. That was a fantastic experience to just seeing the governments in both locations, working with them so closely, launching those scooters and, and just seeing the immediate traction that you get because it's a fundamentally very likable product depending on the location you're in. So I think, you know, long story, long story long, that's effectively what I did in Southeast Asia. That's amazing. You've really done something that's quite remarkable, which is you know, kind of like double down and do multiple times what I call like the market launch and the business unit launch, especially in the Southeast Asia context as well, which is a rare skill have. And I mean, most people only do like one rep of it, you know, but you've effectively done three reps of it with enough progress and traction all the way from effectively kind of like day one. So I guess I'm kind of curious. When you look at those roles, you know, you've obviously done a mixture of like business unit launch, market launch, and GM. How would you look at them and say how they're similar for someone like you and how they're also different in terms of scope? You know, first of all, I'll, I'll highlight one massive difference between, say, a launcher and a general manager. And I'll focus on those two rules because you know, the business launcher, that, that's always your business. Whether you're a GM or a market launcher, you're always sort of working on new businesses, growing them, etc. These are such new industries, whether it's food delivery or e-scooters uh, or even e-commerce in Southeast Asia. So GM versus launcher. First of all, as a launcher, you are focusing on very binary KPIs, right? You launch or you don't launch. You have a date, you meet it or you don't meet it, right? And um, I think herein lies a huge problem for some businesses, right? Because you have to do a transition and you have to randomly or very quickly move to your next business. And what I saw uh, very often happening, especially in Lime, is the launcher's incentives don't align with the long-term benefit of business. You know, for example... Renting a warehouse, right? You need to rent it by a certain date. It doesn't matter if it's within 10 kilometers or 50 kilometers of your most traversed area of your scooters, right? You just need to have the scooters there. And then you effectively end up putting somebody else in hot soup. So having nuanced KPIs versus very binary KPIs is a huge difference between a launcher and a GM, right? And of course, the GM has the latter, which is nuanced KPIs. And to give you an example, once you're a GM, you're looking at the marketing, you're looking at you know, your your cost per acquisition, you're looking at operational efficiency, you're looking at your government relations, and of course, you're looking at your sales KPIs, right? So that's one immediate uh, difference. The second is just the gravity of the role. You know, with the GM, the buck stops with you, right? So whether you succeed or fail, 
as a business, you're responsible for that, right? You're responsible for all the hiring. Whereas with market launchers, there's still a sense of, okay, you know, like I did the binary launch and then somebody else's problem, right? And uh, I've, I've done that as well, right? Like I did the launch in, in, in Munich to some extent, and I hope I didn't create somebody else's problem because <laughs> I was very sensitive about the fact that I've been in that person's shoes before. I've tried to create a sustainable business. But, uh, you know, that's, that's one huge difference. And that leads me sort of to the final point, which is profitability, especially with COVID, uh, even before COVID, uh, you know, with the big bust, with, uh, you know, a lot of the, the SoftBank related issues, you know, VCs have become more conservative. Now it's all about unit economics. You, know, you, you raise funds as well, Jeremy. Within the first conversation, you will start hearing, you know, when, are you, when do you plan to become EBITDA positive or, you know, unit economics positive. And that is something as a GM you have to focus on from day one. You cannot just use all the company's resources to launch and then expect to get your bonus or, you know, create a profitable business, you know, whichever one you're gunning for. You need to be considerate from day one that you are putting in processes and SOPs, which will stand the test of time as well and, and be profitable over time. I think those are the three big things. API is the, the, the overall mentality of long-term success and also profitability. That's so true. I mean, I think it's interesting because the type of people that people hire from market launches and GMs tend to look relatively similar, right? You know, I would say GMs maybe look like they have more experience at a city level, a few more years of experience. Do you feel like the recruiters looking for market launches and GMs are kind of like looking for the same bucket-ish of people? No, actually. You know, very often when I get approached for a GM role, which is more often than not now, people are looking for tenure and they're looking for experience having managed teams right? Under chaos, right? So they want you to not only have had direct reports and have, you know, ideally scaled the business to some extent, but really have shown that you can do it under vague goalposts, which is very often the case with tech, because very often the company itself is building itself, recreating itself every six months, but also with complete chaos, whether it's budget or direction or, you know, leadership change, which is so frequent in these companies. So I I think that is something that recruiters are really looking for, um, for GMs. Whereas for market launchers, it's more just look, you know, do you have that consultant or, you know, Goldman Sachs or investment banker or straight out of a business school background? Um, are you a hustler? Are you able to, you know, meet those same binary KPIs which I just spoke about uh, and just get shit done in a sense, you know, excuse the language. And you'll actually hear that in the mission statement, that, that very line very often of companies, especially for launchers. So I think there's a big difference between the two. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think oftentimes you see market launches as being a stepping stone to potentially becoming a GM if you're able to add on those additional kind of wisdom around the additional KPIs and the new ge- geography knowledge. So let's zoom in for those who are looking at their first ever market launcher role, right? They're looking at a JD and says, launch the market, right? For a US company, a Chinese company, a European company in, in any part of the world, for example, Southeast Asia or Singapore and Thailand. How should they think about a role? How would they know whether it's a good role to take on or not? I always say that it's very difficult to look at a JD and figure out what is expected from you, right? And that's something which requires a bit of introspection as well. Like, are you okay with ambiguity, number one, right? Because chances are, if you are the first person on the ground, it's going to be very ambiguous. You don't know the government relations. You don't know what the sales process is. You don't even know if the customer likes your product, right? You're making a guess on all of these two things, right? So. Number one, can you deal with ambiguity? And that's something not everyone can, right? So let's assume you can. Number two is look into the KPIs. And by that, I don't mean what the company's handing over to you, 
right? Because as I mentioned, they can be very black or white. Are you expected to run the business over the longer term? If yes, you need to be asking questions like, what is my success defined over six and 12 months? Not just launch and figure out who the government relations uh, stakeholders are, right? So look beyond just what's being given to you from day one. Because chances are the company's not thought about it, and that'll come back to sort of, you know, bite you in your rear in the future when you realize that neither one of you has given it any thought, and now it's becoming clear. And number three, as I found out sort of the hard way, is the regulations, right? And whether you're in micromobility or fintech or, you know, reg tech, the majority of industries in developed markets are highly regulated, which means that if you're a disruptor, you're going to be, you know, butting heads against the government of officials on a monthly basis. And it can become a huge blocker to your success. So do your homework, you know, before you even, you know, join, look at the JD, figure out, is it completely illegal, you know, or is there some massive barrier to success, which your American or your British headquartered recruiters have not looked into? You know, these are the things you should be looking into while considering the JD and whether you're a fit or not, or you, you jump ship. So let's just say that. Someone says, goes through a JD and says, I like the company, I like the product, I see the future. And I think the regulations are fuzzy right now <laughs> around this category of product, or it's still in policy making mode across the world because this company did not exist or this category did not fully exist two years ago, right? Which is so true for so many startups blitzscaling across the world. So, how should a market launcher kind of like approach their role, right? You know, we talk about the preparation phase, but how would you prep them or give them tips on how to succeed in that role? Especially if I think we talked about like launching that market itself in the mechanics. And then we'll talk about government relations in a following question. Sure. I mean, you know, first of all, the pins are never going to be all lined up, you know, the way you also put it. So there's always going to be something slightly off, right? And that's also the fun of it. If it was a playbook all the time, there would be no, no fun, no learning for you, right? But number one, definitely leverage from the knowledge of others. You know, don't try to reinvent the wheel. You know, there's already definitely launchers in place in your company, most likely. Speak to them, figure out where they screwed up, right? And that's more important than where they succeeded. But that's going to be part of the playbook that's handled, handled to you, right? So figure out where they tripped over and try to avoid those mistakes because you know, chances are you'll make the same mistakes. You don't see them coming. So learning from those around you is such an understated thing in startups and it doesn't happen enough. You, know, you have Slack, you have so many tools. You should be on a call at least once or twice a day for the first month, you know, with people who are doing exactly what you're doing, trying to figure out what, uh, what you could be avoiding or doing more of, et cetera. So that is one huge thing you should be focusing on once, you know, all those other factors are in place. But number two, I mean, it's, it's also the thrill of learning on a daily basis, something new, and every single market you launch will have a new learning for you, no matter how many playbooks you read or how many people you speak to. And that's just part of the journey. And uh, you sort of go along and you learn as you traverse between the geographies. So um, yeah, I think that, that's a pretty short answer from me, which is learn from those around you who've already done it, definitely. And uh, number two, just sort of enjoy the journey because you're going to keep you know, making mistakes and that's part of the process. And you got to just sort of take the blows and pick yourself up quickly and uh, move on to the next role because most startups will be forgiving as well for that role. But it's, it's, it's a very ambiguous place to be. How do people think about cutting through the ambiguity, right? I mean, so... You know, a lot of people kind of like freeze up when in a market launcher role, right? Because there's so much ambiguity, right? It's a new product for yourself, but it's a new geo for the company, right? And you're supposed to kind of like, you know, both of you are kind of like have missing pieces of the puzzle, right? So how does that meeting go for that kind of conversation? Like where one side doesn't know the geo, but look at you for a direction and you 
not fully understanding the product and the mechanics of the company, but you, you knowing the geography. How, how should that meeting be done in terms of agenda or prep or conversation on a decision? No, that's a great question. This can be a, a great issue of frustration, um, especially when you're dealing with companies headquartered on the other side of the world. Right? Chances are they do not understand the business and the cultural nuances of running whatever they're doing in, in Singapore or in Southeast Asia or India or China. Right? And I think that's led to some very high profile failures as well, right? whether you're talking about Uber in Southeast Asia or in China or you know, Amazon, you know, they're still not really being able to launch. And, and the reason I mentioned this is it is critical for the launcher to give two-way feedback, right? And I think what launchers will find and what I saw happening a lot, for example, at Lime is it is easier to just go with the flow, right? You've been given a binary KPI, launch, right? You're going to get your bonus as long as you do it. If anything, you might even get slapped on the wrist for giving upward feedback that things are not going according to plan, parts of the puzzle are missing, you're not getting the support that's required, Right. My personal take on this is, you know, it's a, it's a very different approach than a lot of launchers is you need to always be aligned with the long-term success of your business, which means that, yes, you could just meet your binary, binary KPI and be done with it, but either you or someone else is going to have to pick up that slap. Your reputation gets around, right? It, it, it precedes you in your next role or within the same company, you know, in the next geography that you go to. So I would personally say, lay out your roadmap. Right? So from day one, you're not going to have all the knowledge, right? but figure out what you need to do, depending on the interviews you spoke to, as I mentioned, depending on the company's own playbook, depending on the stakeholders you spoke to you know, during uh, the first few weeks of your role, lay down that roadmap and then figure out at a stepwise journey what you have and what you don't have. Right? Out of what you don't have, figure out whether it's something your company can provide you with right? and whether it's worth fighting for if they can provide you with it or you know, asking for. And if they cannot provide it for you, who can provide it? Right? And if it's even providable or you just need to work around, right? So you need to break down the launch into chunks and then from those chunks, figure out where you can or cannot get support. And when you can get support, is it worth asking for it? Because remember, you only have a couple of cards you can play. So is it a fight worth fighting for? And I think those are decisions you'll be making on a daily basis as a launcher. And uh, it's something which never really subsides for that role. It's, it's always constant chaos and hecticness. Thanks for sharing the real reality behind that conference call, I can imagine. I think one of the big topics that obviously comes up, and I shared earlier that we want to talk about is government relations, right? Which is a big part of it, right? I mean, market launches already have binary KPIs, timetable to hit, communication HQ. And then I think the elephant in the room is regulations, right? You know, and how to approach that relationship. And it's almost, a I wouldn't say it's a workshop by itself, but it's definitely a huge variable by itself that can predicate the success or failure entirely independent of everything we just talked about of like good agenda setting, good work stream, thinking long-term. So how should people think about trying to understand the problem of government relations? It is such a massive field and I by no means am an expert, right? I was sort of thrust into this at Lime and to some extent at Deliveroo as well. But, you know, I'll sort of use the two experiences to highlight what, what I learned from it. And by no means, again, am I you know, a lobbyist in any way? But in both roles, I was directly responsible for speaking to ministers and uh, their various subordinates in the different departments in the Singaporean and in the German government. And I'll just compare the two. So both Singapore and Germany are you know, known for strictly implementing rules and, and having a, a very careful playbook for any new, especially new industry, which is launched. But you just cannot get around the government. What Indians like me love to call uh, a term called jugard, which is basically getting stuff done. Right. And, and finding ways to get it done. 
does not apply in these two geographies, right? You have to play by the book or you get banned, right? So that's one similarity between the two. But where, you know, I saw a massive difference is Germany embraces new technologies with very strict rules in place, right? Whereas Singapore, there is a very clear way to get an answer, but they are far more conservative in their final answer, right? And we saw this both with e-scooters and with cloud kitchens. And, you know, my wife is in fintech uh, very often. You know, I won't speak on her behalf, but, you know, she's met some regulatory obstacles as well. And I'll give you a few examples, right? Uh, but very, very briefly, Singapore will tell you these are the departments you need to speak to, and these are the tender processes or the applications you need to make, right? But by the end, the chances of you getting a successful answer are somewhat limited because, you know, they will be very conservative in their approach, right? All the different stakeholders. Germany will do the same. They'll lay that path out for you, but they want to embrace new technologies. They want to be ready. They want to be positioning themselves against the Londons. They want Berlin to be the next startup capital, right? And that fire is, is really there for them. And you'll see them approving different laws, whether it's cloud kitchens or micromobility or fintech faster. And even if there's some ambiguity in place. So I think there's a difference in comfort for ambiguity between the two geographies, which I definitely noticed in my approach. So I think that's number one. I think number two is government relations is it, it's something where a, a huge amount of tact is required, right? These are, uh, these are individuals who you know, still maintain a lot of rank in their file. And you need to be respectful of that. It doesn't work like a startup. You can't go in there, you know, dress a certain way, speaking a certain way. You still need to respect that way of, of, doing, uh, of doing business, right? And I think very often, depending on your cultural background, you'll see that breaking down in Southeast Asia. But you'll see cer certain cultures are just too casual about it, right? And that's a huge mistake to be making. And even in Germany, not just in Southeast Asia. So I think understanding cultural nuances and the fact that governments work a certain way is so critical to, you know, making or breaking your business from day one. And I cannot understate that as much. I think those are the two big things. At the end of the day, every country has specific differences about how they make decisions. And I think that if you're not aware of the map of how decisions flow, then it's better to be cautious and respectful and open up with questions uh, personally to start that conversation rolling and ask what the map is and then see where it goes from there. Whereas I've sometimes seen counterparts as kind of like <laughs> parachute in like a pile of bricks a little bit and say, hey, work here before and it's going to work again. It doesn't end well often because, you know, there are certain stakeholders that have to make sure are aligned, right? You know, in any situation, I think sometimes people kind of like forget how much cultural context they're carrying. And just because they've been successful in another geography doing it doesn't mean they're going to be successful again, right? Unfortunately, I think that's where it comes down to a conversation that I love to have with you is how do you think people should get smart around policy and government regulations across the geography, right? I mean, for example, the US, obviously, it's 300 million people, relatively consistent ruling at a federal level with some state by state, you know, and you know, locality differences. But Southeast Asia, you know, it's like a bunch of different countries, right? With very different cultures and laws. The laws are in different languages too, right? So how should people kind of like get smart to the region if they've been like you know, parachuted in? That's a fantastic question. And actually, I'll also add something to your previous question while I answer this is, you know, you mentioned US right now, and it's critical to highlight the difference. US has lobbying, right? Like that is a fundamentally critical aspect of all of their businesses there, right? And I would hear from my seniors, why don't you go lobby the Singapore government at least once a week? 
right? Anybody who's set foot in Singapore knows you, you don't lobby the Singapore government, right? They have rules and you abide by them, right? If you want to create a new segment or a new business, you can apply via tenders and the government will certainly consider it, right? But lobbying is just not a concept, right? Unless you are a really, really massive company, right? And then you can use VCs, et cetera, to, to have that lobbying arm. So, you know, number one is when you are approaching Southeast Asia, whether it's Vietnam or Thailand or Singapore or Malaysia, you have to consider a completely different approach to getting stuff done, right? That typical lobbying mentality is not the same, whether it's Singapore or, or any other country in Southeast Asia. So that's number one huge difference, right, for uh, the bigger companies entering Southeast Asia, which just doesn't work the same way here. Number two is there is no shortcut to spending time in that country and hiring locals who can advise you, right? And I think what happens very often is, you know, a Western company will see a market, they'll think ASEAN, right, or Southeast Asia, right? And they'll think one hand, one glove fits all, and they'll try to just launch with a blanket approach, right? And I think e-scooters is, is a good example, right? Where, you know, various companies are like, hey, you know, there's a critical density of population and these many people can afford it. Why don't you just go and launch in Jakarta? And this was not lying, by the way. So this just did not happen, but I heard it from my competitors. And one of them did do exactly that. And within a span of weeks, you know, there were fatalities, right, in Jakarta, right? And that is a perfect example of, you know, you need to not only uh, look at, you know, the lobbying thing, which I mentioned, but local nuances, like are there, you know, are there paths for e-scooters, for example, right? Singapore has them, Malaysia has them to some extent, Yale, no other country has them, right? And that is something every, every single business, whether it's e-commerce or something, needs to be looking at. And there's no shortcuts. You need to be hiring locals. Maybe even speak to um, you know a local government, either lobbying or uh, you know agency like that, which can advise you in the beginning and help you. You know, even if they charge you an expensive fee, they'll help you avoid those very critical, time-consuming, PR-destroying mistakes, which uh, may be inevitable over the next six to twelve months had you not consulted them. So, take the long approach, take a country-specific approach, and speak to locals. Absolutely, who know what they're talking about. I think that's where both of us agree is that, you know, we're talking very much about taking that medium to long-term view, which is instead of like, how do we launch as fast as possible versus how do we make this a sustainable, value-creating, even EBITDA profitable arm of the company, right? Which is more of the GM mentality. I think a lot of new market launches, they have that path open for them, right? You know, eventually they could eventually get promoted to become the GM of the geography they're launching, or they could see themselves growing the skills to become a GM or business unit or a different girl. What things do they need to do explicitly differently in order to get into the GM role or at least have the skill set to be a GM? Sure. So I think one relatively intangible aspect is people management. When you're in the launch role, yes, you may be managing certain people, but it's generally over a shorter stint of time. And as I mentioned, the KPIs are the far simpler, right? Launch, Hit a certain number of sales, etc. Number one is can you can you grow that team and also you know manage a wider variety of verticals? You know whether it's from operations to sales to marketing, as I mentioned earlier. Can you really manage all those things and double, triple, quadruple hat across different aspects of the business as opposed to just focusing on say mainly operations and launch and sales? So that's number one. The team management aspect, whether it's the culture you build or the KPIs that you're looking into, is absolutely critical. And you have to prove in your previous role that you can do it right? very often. It's a bit like in consulting. Before you get promoted to the project manager or the associate principal or whatever you want to call it, you have to be doing that role for a while with your current designation before you get the formal promotion. So that's number one. 
Number two is always have humility, right? And I think um, a lot of project managers who or project launchers who go into the GM role feel that it's going to come with a lot of uh, entitlements and all of a sudden you won't need to get your hands dirty, right? And I see this happen you know, more than once where it's like, wait, you still expect me to be doing you know, XYZ task when I'm a GM? And I think understanding your customer, being on the ground uh, is something which is even more important when you're a GM, right? And, and, and maintaining that level of connect across both roles is critical, right? So you need to constantly be in touch with your customer as a project launcher and make sure you're bringing those insights into your work and you can transition to a larger team doing that as a GM. That's number two. Yeah, I think finally to, to really make that leap, you need to be able to prove that you're able to understand both the, you know, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but you know, both the 20,000 foot view and also, you know, the, the 20 foot view, which is where you can be looking at the overarching business metrics, you know, the profitability, the EBITDA, et cetera, but also, you know, the actual day-to-day operational, you know, what is your throughput, what is happening at a, a relatively delivery level, um, you know, if you're in food business or in e-commerce at a delivery level point, where are the operations breaking down? And also delegation, right? Which is part of that third point. Right? You're at the 20,000 foot view. You can't be involved in anything. Whereas in a market launcher, you need to be involved with everything, right? But um, that switch is a bit challenging for a lot of people. It was challenging for me as well because I had to do it the other way around, going from the 20,000 foot view into being very hands-on. I think not everyone is able to make that successful transition. Some people still tend to micromanage and they lose a bigger picture. Others tend to be too hands-off and they don't understand what the customer is doing. So yeah, I think those three things are, are very critical when making that jump from a, from a launcher to a, a GM role. Yeah, I think that's so true because there are so many things that are moving, like the intangibles are there, the scope is changing, and then you know the state of play is changing during this transition. I'd love to hear a little bit more as we kind of like the nuts and bolts, you know, you mentioned earlier about also like the drive towards profitability, right? Which is the changing of the KPIs from the binary to the sustainability viability profitability of the city and for example you mentioned like launches get it up but they're not thinking about fatalities or safety or not at yourself but you know at competitors but because you know it's implied that it's broken because of the kpis which is like let's rush the launch versus that other way which is how do we make say indonesia or singapore like a viable piece of the puzzle right for the company how should people be thinking about that profitability and viability? I think they started mentioning some of those things, right? Like nurturing government relations, uh, building out a team, thinking through profitability. So how should they go about kind of like going through those mechanics of thinking about what those KPIs are? I'll try to sum this up as briefly as I can because it's such a long question. Number one is your fundamental product or service itself, right? Is it highly commoditized? In which case, you know, profitability is a very long-term aspect, right? You need to be focusing on customer acquisition. And for that, you require discounts. It's the harsh reality. Whether you're in Singapore, whether per capita is higher or in Vietnam, people love discounts, right? And they love discounts more than in other geographies. Maybe the only other competitors are, are India, no, not even China, right? So uh, how defensible is your product and how, uh, how, how high are the barriers? To That's number one. That's definitely going to affect your, your break-even. Number two is your initial investment, right? And this applies to any business. So it's a generic point, but at the same time, it's, it's so uh, understated, right? Now, if you're building a cloud kitchen, you need to invest upfront, for example, into a lot of assets. You know, your CapEx is very, very heavy. Your, your break-even is postponed to a much later date. And that's you know, an expectation you need to be setting. And you know, maybe the first KPIs you'll ever break even on are just your day-to-day variable costs, right? EBITDA is much further down the line. 
But if you're investing in something like, say, e-scooters, yes, that production or purchase of the scooter is your cost, but that's effectively your only cost, right? Afterwards, you have a little bit of day-to-day running operations. A lot of it is outsourced, right, to, to bringing the scooters back and charging them, right? And those are the KPIs you really need to focus on, right? So your, your business model itself greatly will decide on uh, the EBITDA level uh, or, or, you know, whatever sort of profitability you're going for. I think those are the major ones. And I think one thing which I would really want to stress when it comes to profitability is understanding how your company just does the accounting. And this is something which I think anybody who's worked in a tech company, any tech company, this is not just, you know, this is from all the way from IPO'd Ubers to, you know, which which have to disclose their financials to recently started companies. The, The metrics are so vague. You don't really know what's going into, like, is this my overheads? Is the warehouse cost even measured? You have no idea, right? So just understanding and taking the time to really sit with your finance team and, and know what you're being measured on is critical. And I'll give you an example. In, in one of my tech companies, nobody, nobody, and I literally on, on this continent knew what that metric for profitability actually included. And until I actually had a call with the CFO and the person mentioned, oh, actually that line item is not a part of it. And that is, and everyone in the room was like, oh, it was like this moment of like halo light dawning on us. Just know what you mean when you're told to focus on profitability, because chances are your, your seniors don't, right? So understanding what's a part of that is, is so critical and so understated as well. That makes me laugh, and yet it's so true, right? You have to really always be aware that I think knowing, I think I would call like the, the operational levers, right? Like think about it from our raw materials to our processing to our management. I think there's a very linear way we understand how costs are added in a process. I think it's non-intuitive for people to break it out into like, these are my fixed expenses versus my indirect expenses and then your variable costs. And then what's the difference between direct costs and indirect costs and which of them are actually in play for this geography versus the broader company and this product line. And I think if you're not able to like think through those three layers of conversation around profitability, then that's where you lose track of where the metrics are. And then you lose track of where your KPIs are. And then I think the most important thing I think you're kind of mentioning is normally what it boils down to is like, once that formula comes out, it becomes pretty clear what are the two or three operational measures that are really, really important for you to nail down that really drives the, the operating metrics, right? Like you're not going to change the amount of taxes that are happening in the local geography. You're not going to change the fundamental cost of goods sold because there's something being done by the major HQ. But there are some levers in between that you actually have power over as the GM or as the market launcher. You know, I think I would love to hear from you is how should people manage their psychology around this role, right? There's so much ambiguity. There's so much movement. You're working across different time zones. How should they manage their, I wouldn't call it work-life balance, but how they maintain their equilibrium in this process? So I'll tell you something common, which I noticed across all market launchers, right? And I don't meet a lot of these criteria. Like I'm, I'll just start off by saying like, I'm, I'm married, you know, uh, we, just, we just had a baby. But what you'll find in the quintessential market launcher is they are single and they're in their mid to late 20s, right? And the reason I mentioned this is it requires frequent geographical mobility, right? You're living out of a suitcase in a hotel, right? And I mean, A, not two suitcases because you don't have that luggage allowance. And that's critical. You'll realize once you're traveling, whether you're a consultant or a launcher, it, you need to be able to you know, wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning you know, for those weekly calls, which happen in San Francisco when you're in Taipei. Or, you know, you need to be flexible with, with that kind of lifestyle. And um, 
that can wear down on a lot of people, especially if they're a bit older, if they have families, if they have commitments. That's something to ask yourself, right? Is it some, is it, is it, are those sacrifices you're willing to make uh, in your quality of life? And I feel like if you're in the right stage of your life, that experience is unmatched. Having that kind of exposure to different cultures, different business models, and just so hands-on learning from you know, your successes and your failures, that is so difficult to get in any other industry, even in consulting. So I would say, you know, ask yourself those questions. Are you willing to make those sacrifices? If yes, it, it, it pays off handsomely and it's absolutely worth it. So be self-aware of what kind of persona you are, what kind of travel lifestyle you're okay with before going in. Absolutely. And that can really make or break your experience. And also maybe just to talk a little bit about the stress. One of the biggest levers for stress is, you know, I mentioned the GM is sort of the, you know, where the, the end of the line in terms of responsibility, but the launcher is a one woman show. You know, it's a one woman or one man show. That means that though you have binary KPIs, though they're more straightforward, if you fail, it is quite dramatic, right? You don't launch the entire business fails, right? And all that weight is on your shoulders. A lot of people don't, don't necessarily deal with that so well, right? Like I've, I've heard indirectly of launchers who just, it was too much for them. And I completely understand. I felt that at times as well. When the deadline was fast approaching, you don't have the, you know, the pieces in place and you, you don't necessarily have anyone to blame at that part of time. It's all you, right? So can you, can you deal with you know, the geographical pressure, the, the, the deadline pressure, and the fact that you are a one-woman, one-man show? That is something, again, you know, personal questions you need to just ask yourself. How do you think that there has been a trend, obviously, of, you know, always, I mean, from day one, right, of multinational corporations moving to Southeast Asia, and now tech startups moving to Southeast Asia, setting up offices? And obviously, I think we see a division of roles between, like, say, engineering teams often stick to HQ or they're remote, you know, senior leaderships in one location, the satellite office. I mean, how should we think about the optimal arrangement for this kind of dynamic or how should someone navigate that dynamic of, you know, being the equivalent of a satellite office? One example, you know, that we've heard is, you know, the reason why Grab was able to outcompete Uber was because Grab was able to mobilize its engineering resources in a much more focused than Uber, right? You know, so the icons were changed, the language and localization, even just like rolling out, like you said, features and promotions with this different dynamic. To some extent, we've seen that conversation happen at Uber at Rocket Internet as well. So how do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I'll pick up from a couple of points from what I mentioned earlier, right? Number one is, you know, there's countless examples. Maybe I just stress upon them a bit just to show how universal this is here. You know, whether it's the Ebays of 2007, which lost to you know, now gigantic Alibaba, to you know, Uber losing to Didi, to Grab, to Uber Eats losing to Zomato in India and, and Swiggy. The, 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 the examples are countless where a far better funded and much more established American or European counterpart tried to launch in any of the Asian countries and just flat out lost within three years, right? And I feel like they don't seem to learn from it, right? Because you see those same mistakes being committed again and again. And it boils down to number one, localization. Localization not, is, is a large part about just engineering resources, right? Because the engineers are your final bottleneck to uh, between conceiving an idea or receiving a customer insight and having it manifest itself in an actual tangible product change, right? And what you'll find in you know, a lot of the American and, and the UK-based tech companies is their tech teams are located in those geographies and they focus solely on those geographies, right? And they don't have the insights and they don't have the product managers in the Southeast Asian or Indian or Chinese markets to be giving those insights back 
or if they have the pro- project manager, they don't have enough tech people dedicated to be you know, converting that into it. Uh, and I think everybody who's worked in this geography has felt that frustration at some point in time, right? So localization in terms of lack of product managers or lack of tech engineers or just lack of people uh, conducting customer insights or customer surveys is one of the biggest barriers for success for Western companies coming to um, Southeast Asia, right? For, for that lack of localization. Uh, number two, I won't stress about this too much, but regulations, we already spoke about it. You need to understand every single one. There's no shortcut, right? You need to just um, uh, employ people on the ground or agencies to understand that. Otherwise, it'll be a make or break, you know, as all the examples I mentioned earlier have found out on their respective geographies. And finally, management. I think, you know, the Netflix CEO, Reed Hastings, touches upon this in his new book. And we've all experienced this in some form or the other. The American or the European style, and European is a big bucket. You know, Germans are fundamentally very different from French, from UK, uh, from the British. Translating those styles of management into a successful team and work culture doesn't necessarily always happen fluidly. And figuring out how you can transition that, that uh, you know, that, I wouldn't say power, but that ability to manage to locals or being on the ground yourself for amount of time so you understand those management nuances can absolutely make or break the venture. Now, I've seen this happen between Indians and Southeast Asians of different countries. I've seen this happen between Americans and Indians, Americans and Southeast Asians. You know, there's a vast cultural rift between how you work at home and how you get things done and how people receive feedback and how it works over here. And it can absolutely make or break your business. And understanding that fast and adapting your ways or finding somebody else who knows those ways better than you is a huge make or break factor in, in localization for Western companies looking to move east. That's so true. And I think that's really, I think, the crux of those companies that do succeed expanding regionally and globally versus those that don't, right? And I think for large multinational corporations like, you know, Shell, you know, the oil and gas firms, they, they pretty much do all those things. They have like engineers, they have HQs, they are very, they have rotational programs across the geographies. So I think they have that DNA now to like fight for that global slice. And I think for tech startups, they're always rediscovering for the first time, launching a new market, a new region as part of a process, right? I guess last question I have for you is, you know, when we're thinking about life paths, right? In terms of saying, I've done consulting, I've done market launching, I've done the GM role. What would you say have been tremendously helpful books or resources that you think have been helpful for your journey thus far? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I read a lot of books and you know, very often I'll find a lot of common content between them as anybody who reads a lot of books on whether it's management or leadership or tech startups. So it's difficult to pinpoint you know, any two or three ones, but I would take a step back from you know, diving straight into management books and, and maybe look at something which can help people starting their career or even midway through their careers, such as myself or early stages, which, which focus on your, your values or your principles. Right? And I feel like once you have some idea, and you know, those will change with time as well, some idea where those stand, it sort of sets up a filter for your decision-making. Right? And that filter applies to you know, both your personal and your, and your, your professional life. And uh, one book which I found, which uh, you know, is very commonly available, a lot of people have read it, is you know, Ray Dalio's Principles. He, of course, lists his own principles, and you don't necessarily have to agree with them. But it's more just understanding that thought process of how you can come up with that filter. For, for making decisions, which is so critical. And you know, it fundamentally changed the way I approach problem solving after reading that book. So that's one, that's one really big one. Apart from that, recently, I, I read a very 
slightly disturbing actually book from the Netflix CEO called you know, No Rules Rules. It's just come out. And the reason I mention this is, of course, because it's fresh in my mind, but because Netflix has such a drastic hands-off approach to talent building, right? And it made me sweat just reading the book, thinking how the hell do you implement these changes? For example, having no vacation policy or allowing the most junior rung to make decisions on multi multi-million dollar deals without consulting your seniors, right? All of this, of course, boils down to high talent density, right? And, and I think building that kind of culture is a very active management style and it's something I would love to do. And I think reading that book is great. And then finally, Radical Candor. I actually only read the first half of Radical Candor. I didn't read the full book. It is a very cliched book. You will find elements of it in every management book you pretty much read now. For some reason, that one specific book really, really stuck with me when I read it about four or five years ago. And I have personally tried to implement radical candor or whatever you want to call it, radical transparency in all of my teams, right? And it makes a lot of cultures very uncomfortable, a lot of people very uncomfortable. But I feel overall it's for the benefit of personal and also uh, professional growth for the company. So I think if I just had to rattle off, you know, two or three books, those would definitely be top of mind. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughtful reflection and advice. Thanks for having me here, Jeremy. Really appreciate it.